These next few chapters in the Bible are some of my all-time favorites. They are the just best stories because they're super fun. That's parts. They're even really funny. They're exciting. They're really good for when you're talking to kids and getting them all excited about the Bible. They're they're some of my all-time favorite texts. I'm really excited to look at them tonight with you to remind you a little bit of where we've been because last week we had Thanksgiving. We've been going through 1 Samuel and what we've been introduced to is there's a young boy who's been brought into the temple and the temple system right now is just broken. There are people leading it who really shouldn't be in church leadership. There's um, the people who come to church are more devout than the people leading the church to where the people come to church are like, hey, let's offer the sacrifice the way God says we should offer the sacrifice. And the priests are like, no, I'm going to do what I want to do or I'm going to hurt you. Um, there's a lot of bad stuff going on at the temple right now. And the guy responsible, Eli, God warned him in the second chapter, hey, because your sons are doing this wrong, evil thing, I'm going to hold you responsible for it. And then in chapter three, God sends him another warning in, through Samuel. Hey, it's time to knock this off. I'm going to cut off your line. And saying warning after warning after warning, some time has passed and apparently his behavior hasn't changed at all. And so this story kind of takes a diversion for a second. We leave the narrative of Samuel and we're going to start talking about the Ark of the Covenant. It, it leaves, what it is, is all things are kind of coming to a head right now. There's a lot of social pressure. There's a lot of neighboring nation, nation pressure. There's a lot of religious pressure. Things are boiling and things are ready to change. And this is one of the big things where God says, okay, we're changing stuff. This isn't working anymore. So I, part of the reason why I love this is I think that, especially these next few chapters, is it has a principle in it that um, Jesus talks about that's so true. It's just timeless and applies for all of us, that there's two kinds of people. Jesus says there's two kinds of people. There are those who follow his commands and follow him, and there are those who don't. And those who follow his commands and do what he says, they're like someone who builds their house on a rock. And the ones that don't are like those who build their house on sand. And you can have a beautiful house. You could have it all furnished nice. It could be amazing. It could be tall. It could be spacious. It could be full of all the right things. But Jesus says when the winds come, when the storms come, when the rain turns to flood and it rises, the one whose house is built on a firm foundation is built on the rock. He'll be able to stand. If you build your life on anything other than Jesus... If you build your life, the thing that makes you significant, the thing that makes you important, the thing that makes you who you are, if you have that settled on anything other than Jesus, when hard times come and the storms of life hit you and it feels like everything falls apart, that thing that was core to you gets taken away, you could end up like the people in the story tonight where you say, well, God abandoned me. Where was God in all of that? Well, God was never your foundation. And it could, it could be really good things. It's not like bad things that you make your foundation. It could be your career or your relationship with your kids or your spouse. Or it could be the awards you get. It could be your reputation, all the things that you're known for. It's whatever is most core. You say, this is what makes me me. This is what makes me important. This is what makes me significant. Whatever your foundation is, if it's anything other than Jesus, you're at risk to lose it. 
Everything else will leave you. Even really good things, there's no guarantee it'll be there tomorrow. And when that happens, you'll be like the people in this story where you go, the glory of God has departed from me. I don't know if God cares. I, I don't see him working in my life. You'll be distressed like the people that we have here tonight. So let's look at our story. First Samuel chapter four. We're gonna try to hit chapter four and chapter five tonight. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. You guys remember the Philistines as we were going through judges? They're a constant thorn. They're constantly at war with Israel. The judges, a lot of them were raised up to push Philistines out. There've been a constant issue. So again, we find ourselves, the Israelites are once more facing off against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? So here's the picture that we get introduced to. The Israelites, the Philistines are lined up for battle. In all the past times that we've been, as you've been watching stuff through the judges, which is where you would have come from before reading Samuel, you would anticipate, oh, the Israelites can, can push back against the Philistines like they've been able to do in the past. That's, that's, this is what we're doing. This is the momentum moving forward. But they get crushed. 4,000 men die. That's significant losses. And then they walk back from it and they go, why did the Lord do this to us today? Which is really interesting because these are people who really aren't following the Lord right now. Their religious system's all broken. Their temple worship looks just like the Canaanite worship. There, there's nothing really indicating that they're people following the Lord with their whole heart. And so stuff like this, people who really aren't following the Lord, they ask this question all the time. This is something non-believers do all the time. They don't know Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. They have no relationship with Jesus. But when really bad things happen, they say, well, how could a good God do this? You ever heard that? Well, how could a good God? Dude, you don't know God. You know, they, it's interesting because the idea really is they don't want to be accountable to God, but they want God to be accountable to them. You know, they say, if you're really good, if God is really good, then this thing that happened shouldn't have happened. Since that thing did happen, well, God can't be good. Which kind of implies you, you know more than God. Like, you know what's good and bad. You know what's going to turn out good and bad. I don't know. But it's this idea of, okay, well, if God's really powerful, a really powerful God wouldn't have allowed that to happen. So maybe God's not powerful. Maybe God doesn't care. It tends to be the people who don't know God that when bad things happen, they're the ones who go, why has God done this? These are people who, they want God to be accountable to them. They don't want to be accountable to God. I think that's where the Israelites are at right now. And so it continues, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. What is going to come among us and save us? 
Is it the Lord? Hey guys, we need to go home. We need to pray and we need to repent. We need to really seek the Lord. Does, does, Does the Lord want us fighting the Philistines today in this way? Does God want us to change our strategy? No way. They say, okay, what do we got to do? They get together and they go, God has defeated us today. How can we force God to do what we want him to do? I know what we got to do. We need to go get the box. They say, what's going to save him today? We need to go get the Ark of the Covenant that it will save us today. The Ark of the Covenant was something that God gave to the Israelites. They're wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And inside of this, it was, it's a box laden with gold. It was made really special. It, and inside of it, they had the Ten Commandments. They had the law. They had the manna, which is what the bread that God fed the Israelites every single morning as they were walking through the wilderness. And it had Aaron's staff that budded was in it. So it's all good things. All these good things are in the Ark of the Covenant. And they remember. They remember looking past. Hey, you, rem- you know how whenever our ancestors would go out to battle with the Philistines or, or with the Canaanites. Whenever they were traveling through an area and there was an enemy, they always had this box with them. Maybe if we can go get the box, we can go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back, well, then, then we're guaranteed victory. We figured it out. We've been doing the formula wrong. We've been doing the math wrong. If we do A, then God is forced to do B and then C is victory. This is what we do. If we can just rub the magic God genie, right? Because that's what every other pagan religion would be. If you sacrifice to them correctly, you give to them the right things. Well, they think, well, we, we, we missed the formula. This, all we got to do is we got to go back and get the box. The way that they, but the box isn't bad. Know that. The box isn't bad. The way that they view the box and the way they reprioritize the box is what bad. Because really, what's the box supposed to be there for? Why would God want the Israelites to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them? Did the Ark of the Covenant give them special powers, make them stronger, make them braver? What it was supposed to do is it was this physical thing they could look at while out on the battlefield that represented all the ways God has come through for them in the past. Even through rebellion, which is Aaron's staff, Every single morning, even in the tiny things, which is the manna, and reminding them we're God's people. The law is in there, but because God has defined us as his people, this is how we're to act in his society. We're God's people. We're God's chosen people. And if God has continued to come through for our parents and through our grandparents, generation after generation after generation, I bet you God is going to come through for me today. I can be strong and I can be courageous. That's what the ark was supposed to do. I think, how many things in our life do you think God has given you for that exact same thing? That he's given you these things, entrusted them to you, and then hard times happen. Totally, it's just things going on in your job or a relationship or, or social things with your kids, whatever it may be. And we, and we have all these things around us that God has given to you. I think we need to be like the Israelites and go, look at all the ways God has come through for me in the past. Look at how he has consistently provided for us. I bet you he's going to continue to provide even today. But the Israelites, they don't do that. They look at the good thing God gave them and said, oh, we can use this against God. Not use it against God, but we can use this as tribute, as a payment to get God to do what we want him to do. 
There's a train in here. So we've got the formula, but they've totally missed the heart. And what's really funny is look at who's carrying the box. This is probably the most ironic thing of all. You have Hophni and Phineas, the dudes that God has declared, I'm going to kill them. These are worthless men and they're going to die because of the way they treat women in my church and the way that they profane the sacrifices of my people in my church. They take advantage of people. They're thieves of, the, of, of God's money. They're, these are the bad guys. And the two of them are carrying the... It, it's just It's hysterical. It's the wrong idea about how to approach God carried by the wrongest people. These are the, of all the people, these are the only two that should not be carrying it. Like these are the worst two. This is religion, isn't it? This is, I'm going to do all the right things this way. So God owes me. Now I can control God. Now he has to do what I want to do. I don't know if maybe you've ever heard this before, but I've even heard really good Christians do this in their own way where they look in the Bible and they try to find a formula to get God to do what they want for him. So like Gideon, you have this story where Gideon's really unsure if he's supposed to go to battle. So he gets the fleece out and he goes, okay, if there's, if there's dew on it, if there's not dew on it, and if that thing happens, then I know God is, wants me to do this. Well, I hear Christians do it all the time. Well, this is my fleece. If this happens, then I know God wants me to do this. Well, I don't know. I don't know if maybe that was something that was descriptive. The Bible told us that happened with Gideon, and maybe that's not how God works every single time. Maybe God's spirit moves like the wind, and he's doing something different every single day. Maybe every time you look at the miracles of Jesus, he does something different because God's always doing something new. I don't know. But I think we can kind of sometimes look at formulas too and say, okay, how does God work when you do that, I think you miss the heart of God, that God wants us to approach him as his kids, that he doesn't want a religion with you. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want you to work out the formula or figure out how to rub the genie right. He wants your heart. And so verse five, continuing, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the mighty heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the work that Yahweh did in Egypt, all the Canaanites know about it. They heard about what happened in Egypt with Pharaoh and all the plagues that had happened. They've heard about how God had come through for them in the wilderness, and they're freaked out right now. They brought that God with them. The last time I heard about that God, he turned the sun off. Like, certainly everybody saw that because the sun was off for a little bit. That affects everybody. That's not just like, wow, did you see Grant's Pass? It's kind of overcast today. No, that's the sun went bye-bye. You know, they, they heard about this God. So look at what happened. So in the book of Numbers, God is telling them, I've got this promised land for you. 
and you need to go in and push out the Canaanites. And so they send in 12 spies. And when they send in the 12 spies, here's what happens. It's Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. And they told him, when we came to the land to which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. So the descendants of Anak, they're literally giants. They're these demonically influenced, brutal, crazy warrior men. So the Canaanites, the, the Israelites, are coming to look into this promised land, and they see giants, really scary bad guys. They see all the good things, all the things God said was going to be there, but they see these giants, and they go, you know what? This isn't for us. I don't think we can take them. And 10 out of the 12 say, hey, this is a bad call. We cannot take the, the giants. We can't go in there and defeat them. We've got no chance. We've got no hope. We need to come up with a different plan. And as a result, they don't get to make it into the promised land. They have to march around for 40 years until that generation dies. And then the next generation can go in. And then when they do go in, the book of Joshua tells us that two spies get sent into a city. And in that city, they meet a woman, a prostitute named Rahab. And this is the conversation they have with her. It's Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Rahab said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, to whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In that wild, all the Canaanites know, hey, their God's, their God's big. Their God is the God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. How many times do you think we can be easily overcome and stressed out and worried because of the giants that are in our life? That something the enemy is doing. Because the Bible says that we do have an enemy who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. And if anyone in the Bible is supposed to represent some of the demonic work of the enemy, it's the giants in the land. And so it could be stuff going on socially or politically or anything that leaves you to feel like, God, oh, there's just no hope. I just don't feel like anything's going to change. There's no way we can enter into the land. There's no way anything is going to, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. But little do we know that those giants, dude, they're terrified of our God. Like when the, when the spies come in and say, oh, we're the people of Israel, they go, oh, I've heard about your God. The position the Israelites are supposed to be in is to constantly trust in God and not themselves. Not their abilities, not their giftings, not their own strengths, but they're supposed to look at God's strength. So when I was in high school, I had made it freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, all without having to take a single PE course. I thought I figured out the system. And so my senior year comes and my advisor says, hey, you can't graduate. And I'm like, why? I'm doing great. I'm taking AP courses. What's, what's going on? She goes, you didn't take a single PE course. And I go, oh, are you kidding me? This is the first I've heard of that. 
And she goes, well, this, minimally, you have to take one. And I go, okay. She goes, it's kind of awkward because you're a senior. So I can't put you in the freshman course, which is the required course. So we'll have to find something else. Is there any on here that'll work for you? And I was someone, your senior year, things are a little different. Well, maybe it's just Hidden Valley. But if you do things up front, you can leave at noon. Maybe things have changed. I don't know. But so this was the only PE course that was in the 10 to 11 spot. And it was the basketball PE. Here's the thing that I didn't think through. If you're taking an elective basketball PE course in high school, you've probably spent the last four years playing basketball on the team. So literally, it's the varsity basketball team and Justin Cabot. So whichever team had me had a handicap. Like, that's just, that's how it is. And one time, we're playing, basically the rule is don't give the ball to Justin. I'm fine with that, you know? We're keeping moving. I'm not worried about it. One time, the ball got to me. And I'm not joking. This is true. Everybody stopped. Everybody stood still, and I had the ball, and I looked at it, and I looked at the guy who passed it to me like, this isn't how we play this game, you know? And, and he, he goes, shoot! And so I look at the backboard, Hidden Valley's backboard on this side of the court was, it was two chains held it up. And I'm looking at the ball, and I know this is a defining moment in my high school career. This is a big deal. So I took it, and I, I know the form. I've got the form right. And I shoot the ball, and it goes over the backboard in between where those two chains are, and everybody puts their hands up and runs around going, it's good! I never got the ball again. Right? Never, ever, ever. I know if there was ever a situation where it was 2v2, whichever team I'm on is guaranteed to take the, the L. Right? They just lose. That's all there is to it. But if it was the two of the best Hidden Valley varsity team basketball players that we had versus Justin Cabot, and I, I, only knew, I only know two pro basketball players, LeBron James and Michael Jordan. So if, if it's me and Michael Jordan versus these two, I know if I just do whatever MJ says, I'm fine. If I just go where he tells me to go and I do what he tells me to do and I just trust him with it, we're probably going to be okay because these guys don't have a chance against him. That's the position that we're supposed to have with everything in life. Like it's not about me or my giftings or my talents or my abilities. It's all about the one who's shooting. It's all about the one whose team I'm on. If I just do what he says, if I just trust in him, we're probably going to be fine. That's what Jesus is saying. If you listen to me, if you follow me, if you follow my commands, you're going to be like someone whose house is built on a firm foundation. And then when storms and tribulation comes, you're going to be okay because you know whose hands you're in. Even when hard things come, even when it's really dark, even when things are hard, you can say, I know who's got me. The one who's for me is greater than he who's in the world. There are giants outside, and it can be super scary. Yeah, but they're terrified of my God. And that's the thing the Israelites missed. The Israelites didn't have that. The Philistines had more awe and reverence for Yahweh than the Israelites did. It's wild. And so verse 10, this has set us up to really expect, I know I've kind of leaned into it a little too far, but you should be set up for, oh, the Philistines are just going to get crushed. But here's what happens, verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, 
and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons, Eli, uh, two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. And so you can look back. If you look back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 27, you'll see that God sends a man to Eli and says, I've seen what's been going on. I'm not blind to the wickedness that has been going on in your home and how your kids have totally profaned the sanctuary. I've seen how they treat women. I've seen how they've been treating the sacrifice. And you'll know that I'm serious about what I'm talking about because your two sons are going to die the exact same day. And there will not be a person in your home to grow old, basically. And this happens. Hophni and Phinehas died. And then you can look in 1 Samuel chapter 3, where it says, and I declared to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. It's been coming a long, long time. There was warning, there was warning, and then what we're going to see a little bit later is a lot of time has gone past. Sometimes God's justice, it takes time. You might be looking at a system that's totally wrong and broken, and you go, how is this allowed to continue? Doesn't God see? God is faithful, and he sees it all, and he doesn't forget anything. No sin is forgotten. It will all be paid for either by Jesus or by the unrepentant. So we can trust our God. If our God is so serious about justice that he would pay for it with his own blood, he's a God who can be trusted to go, okay, he sees everything in a way that I can't see everything. He knows more than me. He sees the situations, the intentions of the heart. He sees what's gonna happen and he may be long suffering right now. There might be a period of time where things are going wrong and, and we could be looking at certain situations and being like, I can't believe this is still allowed to continue. Our position is to trust God. Okay, God knows more than me. God sees it. God's got a plan. God doesn't forget anything. It's all going to get covered and paid for and taken care of. So verse 12. The war's over. The Israelites have been crushed. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. This is bad news. If you ever saw someone with torn clothes, dirt on their hair, they're in a position of intense mourning. Something really bad is happening. So when they're, the, all their soldiers have gone out to battle and the one coming back herald, herald, heralding news has got his clothes all torn and he's all dirty and gross looking, 50-50 chance bad news. It's, no, it's like, that's bad news. I, I don't think we won. That's what people are looking at. So he's coming home. When he arrived... Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? The man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old. How long has God been patient with Eli and his family? He's 98 right now. How old was he? We don't know when Samuel got dropped off and that man came and said, Eli, this behavior can't continue. 
How old was he when Samuel was a, a boy and came and, and the Lord told him what to tell Eli and Samuel told Eli, hey, God's gonna punish you for this. How long has God been patient with Eli? Because I'm convinced of this. Every single day that Eli woke up and went to work and let his kids go to work, he had every single opportunity to say, you know what, this can't keep happening. You know what, you two can't keep working here. You're fired. You, know, you two can't keep treating the women this way. You two can't keep treating the sacrifice this way. This has to stop. But here's what's crazy. And I think this is a minor indicator, but I'm gonna go with it. It tells us Eli was fat. In 1 Samuel chapter two, that's one of the things God calls out. You're fattening yourself on the parts of the sacrifice that are supposed to be dedicated to God. I think it's an indicator for us, nothing's changed for Eli. That Eli has just kept doing his thing. Eli has just kept letting his kids run rampant in the, the temple and making it look like it's a pagan place of sacrifice, not a place to sacrifice the Lord. Eli, every single day, had an opportunity to fire those boys, apologize to the city for all the, the way that they've treated the attendees wrong, all the way they've treated the women wrong, all the way they've treated the sacrifice wrong, and he just didn't. Our God's not cruel. He's not being cruel here. He's very slow to anger, and our God just desires a repentant heart. Our God doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires people who will come to him and will listen to him. If our God was cruel, it would have been with that first guy coming. Hey, there's stuff going on with your boys. Maybe you don't know, but you're getting punished for it. No, it was years and years and years and years later. And it continues. And his eyes were set so that he could not see. Verse 16. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas. I don't know why, that just irritates me. It really bothers me probably more than it should that Phineas is married and he's treating women this way in the temple. That really bothered me this week. I've been thinking about it a lot. I just think it's like, the, the reason that God called them worthless men, these are the worst dudes. They're doing everything wrong. They're faithless to their family, to their wives, to their work, to the Lord. They're worthless men. They've, there's not one redeeming quality about these dudes. It just bothers me. So anyway, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, and she was about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son, but she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So Phineas, his wife, was pregnant. 
She hears that her husband and her father-in-law are dead. The ark of the Lord has been captured. Pains come over her. She gives birth. It's a boy. She's going to die from the childbirth. And the, the midwives say, hey, it's a boy, though. I mean, you can rejoice in this. It's okay. And she says, name him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, which I've always been a tiny bit resentful for the name Justin. Not anymore. I mean, it could be worse, right? I'm not Ichabod. The glory has departed. You know, part of the thing with what Jesus teaches the parable about the people who build their house in the foundation, those who don't, it's funny, if you don't build your life on Jesus and your life is all about money or your life is all about family or relationships or even about your religion, the things that you do that, that make God owe you, the way that you, you pray, the way that you attend things, the different systems you have in place, if any of those things are the key to who you are, if it's your foundation, when those things fall away, when they break, when they're taken from you, you end up like Phineas's wife, where you say, where's God? Has God abandoned us? Has God left us? Has, this isn't the way things are supposed to be, but your foundation was wrong. That really, it, for you and me, it has to be all about Jesus. That Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the thing that makes you significant and important. Jesus is the thing that defines your value. And everything else is weighed against that, the way that Jesus looks at you. If you truly believe that Jesus looks at you the way that he looks at you, you could never possibly look at yourself and say, well, you have no value or you're unredeemable or you're ugly. You can never possibly think those things because of who you intrinsically are by being Jesus's kid. And so verse five, what happens is we move from the Israelites to just the box, the Ark of the Covenant, because it got taken into the Philistine territory. And we're gonna be pretty quick through chapter five. It's a short chapter. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up besides Dagon. So Dagon is a fish god. The Philistines are fishermen. They came across the sea. They, they actually tried to settle in Egypt, but Ramses III pushed them out, and so they went across the other way. And now they've settled in the Mediterranean area, and they're a constant thorn for the Israelites. Their god is Dagon. He's the, uh, the pictures we have, the descriptions we have, is he had the body of a fish, the arms of a man, and the head of a man. And the way that he fits in Canaanite pantheon is he's the father of Baal, who's the storm god who comes up a lot later in the Old Testament. So that's Dagon. And it would be common that when nationalities go at war with one another, that if you could capture their god, you would bring that idol home, whatever represented that god, and set it up in the home, the household of your god. Because it essentially indicates my god has captured this god. My God is greater than this God. This God is subservient to my God. And so when they bring the Ark of the Covenant there, what they're trying to indicate is Dagon is greater than Yahweh. Yahweh has been utterly defeated by the fish man, Dagon. And so what could be more upsetting than that, right, for the Israelites? What could be more crazy for the Philistines? All they've heard about Yahweh and Dagon has seemingly given them the victory. 
And so the idea, the picture that the Israelites have and that the Philistines would have is that God has come under control of Dagon. But verse three, here's what happens. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So get this, they wake up the next morning, they go into the temple of Dagon, and he's prostrate on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Don't know if maybe Dagon was facing this way and the ark was back there and they wake up and it's down. Don't know. But what we do know is in Israel, in Israel, there's time set aside in the morning. They're supposed to wake up and bow to the Lord, pray to God. And now at that time, when they come in and see Dagon, he's doing that at the ark. Kind of weird, kind of strange. Maybe this happened. Maybe Dagon falls a lot, you know. I don't know. But they go, yeah, okay, that's weird. We'll just we'll put him back. So they put him back up, and then they leave. And then here's what happens next. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So they come in the next day and its head and his hands are on the ground. It's fallen over again and it's been cut off. And for the, the time, the barbaric society that the Philistines were, one of the things they would do when they had conquered a people is they would cut off the heads and the hands of their conquered people to say, these people have been utterly vanquished. They come in and their God has been utterly vanquished. They look at the box and they look at Dagon and they go, it was the floor. Do you see that they don't touch the threshold anymore? Isn't that crazy? They go, what did this? Not the box. Things have been weird since the box got in here. Yeah, but it can't be the box. I don't think it's the box. It must be the threshold. It's gotta be, there's gotta be some logic here because we beat the box. The box can't kill Dagon. Here's what's rad. Yahweh executed Dagon. <laughs> Full on, like mafia style. Like horse in a bed style. Cut his head and his hands off. Whoa. Okay, so <laughs> contrast that. The hands of Dagon have been cut off. The hands of their God would be power. The head would be wisdom. God took them both off. The hands of Dagon are on the floor, worthless, useless, can't do anything. Contrast that with the beginning of verse six, the hand of the Lord. Dagon's hands are cut off. Let's talk about the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. If you have to defend your God, he's probably not a good God. You know what I mean? Isn't that interesting? Because the Philistines could have been like, hey, maybe this one's worthy to worship. But no, hey, we need to protect Dagon, so we got to get rid of this thing. This is one of the reasons, this chapter is one of the reasons why I so enjoy studying God's word. Because our God is a really fun 
and funny God. There's a, a sitcom where the main character has to go to a meeting in a church and he goes into the church's basement and the way Hollywood had set up the church was they, you know, they decorated a set. Well, one of the posters on the wall had a rainbow on it and they made it look like it was a, like a Sunday school class and it said, if it's fun, it's probably wrong. <laughs> because the world paints this picture of God as he's this cosmic killjoy. That God, if it's fun, it's wrong. If you're having a good time, oh, watch out. You're probably going to cross the line and God's not going to like that. I think our God is really fun and he's got a phenomenal sense of humor. Because for years, the Philistines have just been a pain in the rear end for the Israelites. And if you look at this word tumor, the way the Septuagint would translate it, the way some of the old texts have it is they are... Swollen hill shaped mounds in the buttocks. God's justice is perfect. These people have been a pain in the butt for Israel for a little bit. God goes, No problem. Here's a pain in the butt for you. So they're being inflicted, inflicted by these tumors in their private area. It might be hemorrhoids, it might not be hemorrhoids, it might just generally be tumors. We don't know. But the idea is this is bad. And it's afflicting everybody. It's an issue. And so verse 8, here's what happens. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So that's like this. If the ark was brought to Grant's Pass and all this was happening in Grant's Pass, just chaos is ensuing. And we go, what do we do with the ark? Because it's causing the problem. And we go, I know, send it to Cave Junction. <laughs> so they send it to Cave Junction. And here's what happens. And here's what's crazy too, just to keep in mind, Gath is where Goliath is from. So later when we get introduced to Goliath, Goliath and his family would already be very, very aware of who Israel's God is. They might have some memories, some scarring. So they brought the Ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Verse 10. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. So Cave Junction's like, Medford can have it. They just keep pushing it around different Philistine cities. But before it can get to Medford, before it can get to Ekron, but as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They have brought around to us the Ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. The Philistines are just in total chaos right now. These people have more respect for God than the Israelites do right now. Isn't that crazy? And so verse 11, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Unlike Dagon, God doesn't need anyone to defend him. Dagon had no chance. His hands were cut off, and Yahweh's hands keep coming up. And so this picture of God, I know for a lot of people, can be pretty scary. Like there's 
people who hate the Lord, who write books about the Old Testament God and how he seems like a vengeful, angry God who desires that, that people are hurt. And really, it, it points to God being harsh and God being cruel, that God delights in the pain of people. Really, what you have to remember is who the Philistines were and what they've done to God's people. It's like if I have a pit bull attacks my daughter, is it okay for me to be angry? That would be righteous anger, wouldn't it? There's a limit for sure. But for God, God's people have been oppressed and hurt and beaten and mauled by this group of people. And God finally said, okay, I'm done with it. I'm done with it. I'm done with your God. Especially if you're going to think that you have me under your thumb, I'm going to show you you don't. I'm going to show you I am God. I am in control. Our God, really, he wants us to know his heart. He wants us to see his heart. He wants people who will trust him, who will follow his commands, who will know him. And that's the same exact thing that Jesus is talking about. If you trust in God, if you know God, if you can put your faith in him, you have a firm foundation. And over and over again in this story, what's repeated is that the hand of God was heavy upon these people. And so just a few things, and then we'll be done. God gives every opportunity for every person to repent. Eli was 98 years old. 98 years old. He was given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. God gives every single opportunity to repent. God doesn't want to be played. He doesn't want us to be God's people always looking for a formula, trying to figure out how can I get God to bend to my will? How do I make God owe me? God wants people who trust him, who can say, yeah, there are giants, but my God's even bigger. And every single person will have to face the hand of God. And you'll either face the hand, the hard hand, the heavy hand of judgment, or you'll face the hand of grace. Because the Bible says that when you and I stand face to face with God, we will see his hands and there will be two big scars in them that have paid the price for every single person who will turn to him in repentance and say, Jesus, will you be my king? I'm going to trust in you. Your God, I'm not. Everything else will fail me, but you won't. Will you be my foundation? So Jesus, I pray today that if we have set up any other God beside you, any other any other thing that can consume us and be our significance, anything like money or reputation or award, whatever we can look at and say, if I just had that, then I would be something. If I just had that, then I would matter. If I just had that, I'd be significant. Jesus, help us to find not our identity in those things, but our identity in you. That the really good things that you bring our way, that you give to us, are to remind us of how faithful you've been to us. And that you're going to continue to be faithful and you're going to continue to care for us and you're going to continue to provide and have a plan for us. Jesus, help us to be mindful of that. Help us to always look for opportunities to see how you're coming through for us each and every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.